Now, some people like ads, some people don't, and that's okay. But we like to keep everyone happy. So if you're one of the people who doesn't like to listen to ads, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And you can listen to this podcast just the way you like it. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrir. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How you doing there? It is podcast time. Hope all is well and you're not getting too depressed from the last weeks of lashing, lashing rain. I, on the other hand, John, am in the train station of Milan. Yes. I'm in the main Milanese train station. Oh, the tour continues. It's almost like a... The tour continues. It's almost like a Dylan tour, the eternal tour. Mark is on a never-ending European tour. A never-ending European tour. But this time, John, we're going to talk about a country... That has fascinated me all my life. I think it's by far and away the most interesting, the most exceptional of all European countries. It is, of course, Italy. It is not even arguably, without a shadow of a doubt, the cradle of European civilization. People say it's Greece, and sure, the Greeks had a good run, but their run was only about 300 years, yeah. from about 700 BC to about 400 BC. And then it all sort of went. Now, in fairness, they did give us democracy. They gave us all sorts of extraordinary yeah, things. Yeah, they, they had a good run of it. Geometry, they had a great run, right? But, but the Greek wine, Mac, that is not as good as Italian wine. That has to be said. You are absolutely right. Yeah. You are absolutely right. But that's the thing. It's Italy is a sensual place. Yeah. It's a sexy place. It's a place of emotions. It's a place of sensory overload. The people look brilliant. Their food is amazing. Their wine is amazing. The architecture is extraordinary. For me, the Italians, and this is so exceptional, and this is why I get so cross about caricatures of the Italians, right? Is that this is the country that gave us almost everything. You want the Renaissance, you come here. You want art, you come here. Yeah. You want, of course, Dante, John. Yeah, Dante. Well, there you go. I was waiting for Dante to come up in the conversation. But you think like, like Primo Levi, these amazing writers, Umberto Eco. I mean, the Italians, you know, they gave us Toto Scalacci. Like, what can I say? They gave us everything. You know what I mean? Just, you've just overstepped the mark there, Mike. They gave us Franco Baresi. They, no, but I mean, so th there is something exceptional about Italian culture. And there's something permanent. And Italian economics, John, 
is also fascinating. But I'll tell you what, Mark, you know, before you go on to the economics part of it, it is interesting that in all the the years and going on family holidays, you know, to the the usual France and Spain and Kerry and Italy. (laughs) Kerry. (laughs) But uh, of all the, the holidays we've gone on, the kids always hark back to Italy. They were the best crack as you're saying, oh, yeah. it's one for the census. You know, it's the it's the food, it's it, the wine. It's, it's an the, amazing place. Yeah, and they're also and they're also amazingly brilliant with kids. I mean, I, exactly, I, I, exactly. Our Lucy, our Lucy learned took her very first steps on the beach in Camoli, which is down past Genoa. Now, of course, I was this pathetic father going to kind of try to clap her on. And as she did her first couple of steps, believe it or not, there was about five Italian families around us, right? Yeah. They stopped everything and started to cheer. Oh, right? brilliant. They just loved it, you know. It was just on the beach there, you know. And I was, of course, looking like a like a, this this kind of bright beetroot red hair. Absolutely. Well, actually, I'll tell you what, my uh, Izzy always slags me off because the, the, I think it was the last time we were in Italy and we were dropping the car back to the at the airport and I was handing over the keys to the guy and your man turns around and says, hey, pepperoni face. Because <laughs> 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 I was bright red. I was like a lobster. <laughs> Worse than you, Mac. <laughs> Worse than me and that's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. But also, John, exceptionally on, on economics, right? We're going to be talking to a former minister in the Italian government and an Italian who is the head of the overseas development agencies, migration studies, because migration right. is a big thing here in a couple of minutes. But I'll just give you a brief thing. My economics education is Italian. I have a huge debt of gratitude to Italian economists because when I actually ended up doing a master's, I studied under two extraordinary Italian economists, right? A guy called Giovazzi and a guy called Tullio. So Francesco Giovazzi mm. and Giuseppe Tullio. And they were from the Bank of Italy and they were the ones... See, because Italy in the 1970s and 1980s consistently went through currency crises, it went through problems with the lira, it went through inflation crises. Their economists, ironically, despite not being able, this is a real economist thing, despite not being able to change the economy, became incredibly intellectually profound on monetary issues, issues of banking, issues of cash. And of course, if you go back, the Italians invented banking. This is the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. Banking is invented in Florence by the Italians, right? And the Italians invented or at least customized the double entry bookkeeping. They invented accounting. So they were miles ahead of everybody else. So there's extraordinary deep Italian understanding of finance. And it mm. puts them on a totally different level. And in fact, what we're going to talk about is one of the miracles of the Italian economy is how they managed to actually keep everything going despite all the various different impediments that they've created almost for themselves. But Giovazzi, if, if anybody's studying monetary economics out there, Giovazzi and Tullio wrote these extraordinary papers about European monetary integration, about exchange rate dynamics. And also, John, there is only one Italian Nobel Prize winner for economics, a guy called Franco Modigliani. Not to be confused by the painter, most people know the painter Modigliani, <laughs> but this guy was the Nobel Prize winner. And again, I was a deep student of his in the past, and he came up with probably two of the most consequential ideas in corporate finance, in how companies are financed. So Modigliani, with another guy called Miller, came up with this idea. They managed to figure out in a theorem, it's quite heavy mathematically, but the idea is the perfect sweet spot whereby a company can maximize the benefit of whether they finance with equity 
or with debt and what the share of debt to equity is. So, of okay. course, they understood exchange rates. They sort of, all the stuff we talk about, interest mm. rate expectations, yeah. Yeah. the long part of the yield curve, inflationary expectations. But Dignani was miles, miles ahead. And people forget that the Italians in economics have brought us huge amounts. In fact, you could even blame the Italians for economics being called the dismal science, right? Because, you know, the dismal science was an expression which was which stuck to economics in the early part of the 19th century because of the ideas of Thomas Malthus. And we've talked about Malthusian mm. economics and Malthusian traps because he was the guy who basically said that humans are limited. Human progression and demographic expansion is limited by the environment, right? And that at certain stages, if human populations expand geometrically, which we do, right? Because yeah. if you have four kids and then they have four kids and they have four kids, very, very quickly you're into ge geometric expansion. And he was saying that the world, our nature, our food production only expands arithmetically. So if one thing is on a geometrical path and one thing is on an arithmetical path, the geometrical path will expand much, much more rapidly, right? Right, okay. And his idea was, but this stemmed from the evidence from the Black Death in Italy, right? <laughs> so the Black Death comes into Italy, yeah. right? In yeah. 1300, I know it's, we're out there on a tangent, right? We're talking about 1340 something, right? A ship arrives from the Black Sea and it arrives in the Sicilian port of Messala. Mm. And the Sicilian port of Messala, amazingly, the actual expression is Marsa Allah, which means the mouth of Allah which was the name. So it shows how many Arabs were living in yeah, Italy at the time. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it an amazing thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And the Black Death comes up and it kills, we know, one third of the Italian population and, you know, the Decameron and Boccaccio and all those sort of things, right? Now, our friend Malthus, who was a demographer and an Anglican priest, okay, so he's slightly moral, seizes on this and says, you see what happened in the Black Death? This is going to happen again and again and again. Pestilence, Famine will destroy humanity, and therefore we need to actually keep our populations in check. Yeah. Now, in the early 19th century, where there was revolutionary thoughts and Napoleonical thoughts and radicalism and Thomas Paine and the American Revolution, those guys were all talking about the possibilities of mankind, right? Malthus, informed by Italian statistics and the Black Death, was talking about the negativity of mankind. And that's why economics became associated with Malthus and became associated with the dismal science because everyone was saying everywhere else in science, they're saying, what, this is possible. This is how we can go forward. This is how we can change the world. And of course, the economists say, no, no, you can't. All based on Malthus, all based on Italy. So as a result of that, we could even accuse the Italians of fabricating the myth that economics is a dismal science through their experience in the Black Death because it actually stuck with, the, with economics for years. But my point is, in the last... 50 years, the contribution of Italians to economics, to academic and intellectual pursuits in economics has been phenomenal and is rarely recognized. And even worse, John, the Anglo-Saxon press labels the Italians bad at economics when we know the opposite is the case. They're actually brilliant at economics. Well, here, here's the thing, Mark, you know, uh, Italy has, it does have this name, maybe I get it from the, the Anglo-Saxon press, but has always been a bit of a basket case with the lira, you know, 50 billion lira to the, the pound and all that kind <laughs> to of To the stuff. dollar or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we know that Italy is one of the, the largest, strongest economies in Europe. 
Politically, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's, it seems to be in turmoil, constant turmoil. So what is the state of Italy at the moment? Well, John, let's you and I talk to a couple of Italians, right? We are going to go, we're going to go directly to actually Turin, home of Juventus. Hey. And of course, I was reading last night, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist. This is the sort of thing, very good. His prison diaries, well worth reading. Italian Marxist, who yeah. also happened to be a Juve fan. Juve right. also gave us Franco Baresi. I mean, Juve is the epicenter of all good that things. That was Chippy in Brady's football, club, wasn't it? Chippy Brady's club, yeah. The black and white stripes of, and they're actually from Turin. And of course, there's the club is very much associated with Fiat. And Fiat is very much associated with your family because your ma had a Fiat 127. <laughs> That's right. Now, there's a connection. <laughs> there's a connection. I see what I did there. Anyway, let us talk to Marta Foresti, who is the executive director of the Overseas Development Agency in the UK, but of course she's Italian, and Fabrizio Barça. And Fabrizio Barça is a former minister in the Mario Monti cabinet. He was at the Bank of Italy. He was the treasurer. He's an economist. And both of these, John, will give us a flavor of exactly what you were just suggesting or asking is what is happening in Italy. So let us go to Turin and see what's going on. I am so delighted to have Fabrizio and Marta here. They're going to explain to us all about what's happening in Italy. But the question is really, what makes Italy tick? As you know, this is part of our series. It's our summer tour going around Europe, figuring out what is going on in particularly the bigger countries in Europe. And one of them, quite mysterious place in many ways, is Italy. Often caricatured, often misunderstood. And today we're going to figure out, and I'd say about 20 minutes, what makes Italy tick. So Fabrizio and Marta, welcome to the podcast. So Fabrizio, I'm going to kick off with you. What makes Italy tick? You know, you've got this extraordinary country, culture, art, food, music, literature, history, and an economy that when you come here, and I am here, seems to be actually really bustling. So what makes the place tick? What makes it thick is that in spite of this uh, amazing past wealth, there are so many people looking forward rather than backward. <laughs> but there is the leading class that is looking backward. That's the long and the short of it. So there is an amazing de detachment from a country that is still alive in social, private, and believe it or not, even in the public sector because we have a thriving, amazing public administration hidden by terrible bureaucrats at the top, right? So imagine, close your eyes, okay. imagine Italy, which is the sort of the less flat country of the West, okay? Ups and downs, very few valleys, some towns, many towns, little villages all over the places, and you can see the ferment, the social one, people inventing new things in social areas, experimenting care, uh, social reproduction care, health care, or even being on the edge of technological advances and then looking forward and, and not using the wealth as something to sit on, but to build over, right? And then the leading class okay. that this country is expressing is not interpreting that. And so is producing an image of this country that is not the one that keeps it alive. Okay, so that's, that's fine. So you've, when you say the leading class, what you mean is the sort of the elite, the wealthy class who are living on the wealth of the past, not decades, past centuries, when you look at it. And then you have this other more thrusting, more, dare I say, sort of adventurous class that is looking forward. And it's a fight between these two classes 
to, to understand Italy, you have to understand the fight between the old wealth and the new upcoming income. Is that what we're saying? Yes, it is. Just uh, remember two things. And on the on the economic side, remember this country has abolished any tax on inheritance as of 20 years ago. So you can imagine the reproduction of the same guys sort of inheriting the Berlusconi just died and he passed everything except uh, 4% to his siblings. And this is obviously kind of impinging and, and keeping the country back. It's kind of like a break, right? And the political class is exactly the same. Very, very few of those amazing young guys that live in the social, uh, productive and public sector, they're moving into parties. And so the parties are in the hand, not of my generation, of the 40, 50 years old generation that are really not up to the job. Wow. So, I mean, if you've got a drone class and a worker bee class. And the drone, just to use the bee analogy, so the drones are sitting there hanging out with the queen, living off inherited wealth, sucking the prowess of the workers and the worker bees. That's the short of it. Wow, wow. Marta, how are you? I'm very well, David. Nice to be with you again. Lovely to see you again. That last time we spoke, we talk, we spoke about migration. That's your thing. We're going to come back to that in a sec. But in terms of your of your sense of Italy, would you agree? Would you add anything to that sense of like what the big picture is before we get into the weeds of discussing the specifics? No, I would agree. And in fact, I have an image in my head, which I'm going to share with you just to give you a flavor of what Fabrizio just described and this idea of the elite or the few that extract the juice from the country. I was home in Milan a couple of weeks ago and I sat down with my dad watching TV. In Italy, there are very specific programs which are second and in towards the end of the evening, so after 10 o'clock in the evening, they comment on economics and politics and talk show type formats. And I was shocked that everybody uh, on it was exactly the same and they were the same, typically men, who were there, what, 25 years ago, commenting on the political system, both from the left and from the right. And I was really struck by lo stallo, which is an Italian word, I think translates in English as stalemate, but this, how much at this, at this top end, there is this stalemate that prevents all the potential that you just heard about to really flourish. So what you have is not, it's not just a drone class, but it's also a generational war between the older people. Again, we spoke about this in the context of Ireland, who have a stake in the society. This sort of, we spoke about them in Ireland, we call them the insiders versus the outsiders. And we have the same thing playing out in a way in Italy, except in Italy, it's very much the older generation still have the reins and still control everything. It's difficult to find the right uh, metaphors. And, and in fact, I always struggle to think about Italy in, in class terms, especially because I'm influenced by what we mean by class Uh, here in the UK, which tends to be sort of old, elitist, well-established, privileged systems. I think about it more in terms of systems of power and sort of the the, the power dynamics, both in economics and in politics, in the church for that matter, and all sorts of other systems where there are, you know, yes, ruling elites who maintain the, the status quo to continue to extract effectively. And that's difficult to pin down to whether it is a generational issue or whether it is class is, is less related to the established elites. Newcomers can come on to this, to this system and contribute, you know, and start extracting. As, but as um, long as they learn the rules of the game. Okay. It's, definitely, it's, it's definitely a matter of rules of the game and a stalemate in, in that relationship. Can I add a number to that? 
Italy is as Germany, not much less than Germany. It's based on small and medium-sized enterprises, okay? It's one of the more, yes. most entrepreneurial countries in the world, whether with Vietnam and a couple of others. What is the difference with Germany? 75% of the small and medium-sized enterprises in Germany are run by managers, not family members. They're owned by family, but run by managers, right? In Italy, that figure is 25%. That means that that breaks the generational story because what it is is that the sons and daughters of the rich men that owned and did amazing things when they were young are inherit and they don't know how to run it because you can pass wealth, but you don't pass the capacity to run a firm. So, And the same is in the parties. You can join a party at the age of 22 and become old in a matter of a couple of months because you age so quickly. You see what I mean? So it's yeah, not yeah, yeah. just generation. It is actually being insider within the democratic political system or within the economic system. Now, let's just talk for a bit, too, because I, I find this fascinating about the Italian economy, right? Because you just mentioned there, like when, when I come to Italy, when, I, when, I, when you go, for example, anywhere in Europe, you see Italian products, you see Italian design, you see Italian manufacturing, you obviously see Italian food in the, in the, in the area of art and culture. It, Italy outplays its size. I mean, it's a big country, but it, in terms of Italian footprint on the world, it's phenomenal, right? So explain to me this idea that of the economy and how it actually works and how despite having huge debt problems, despite having recurring over the last 40 years sort of crises initially with the currency and then with the debt and whatever, how does it all just keep going on and on and on? Well, I mean, let it be, be just give you a flash, risk attitude. I mean, uh, Italians, in one of the cliches that you mentioned in the beginning, are thought to be people that are sitting on their ass. Uh, sorry, the, the expression. But there is an amazing number of people that take a risk. That has some bad effects because that also means lots of irregular jobs, right? Lots of people are not really obeying the law. There is lots of individualism in this country. Remember that, politically speaking. But that in the entrepreneurial capitalist world means that there are lots of people ready to take a big risk. They take a risk, they have ideas, they're creative, and they do amazing things because you need to, to take a risk to be to do amazing things. So. There we are suddenly in the green technology, for example, if you look at numbers, again numbers, some numbers that match your image. We are not first, we are not second, but we are among the first five nations uh, in the technological border of uh, actually green, high advanced technology, particularly circular economy. Why? Well, because our old ancestors in the 60s produced lots of stuff in uh, tails or, or, or clothes or leather dirty a lot, okay? So they were the first one to discover how not to make things the same way, not dirty. So we are advanced in the areas where we used to be dirty and brown and now we're getting green. And also agriculture is still an extremely important asset for this country. And many of the things you're thinking about are food, but there is a filiere of agriculture and food. And there's so many young people into it, they go to the university, they learn maybe foreign relations, they come back, they match with a lady or with a man that actually knows something about agriculture, they come together and they produce cheese selling it at 25 bucks or 30 bucks on, on, in New York. And that requires today not just knowing how to produce it, but how to sell it. That's sort of just a couple of images that come from our country. No, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. You mentioned New York. I mean, there's a very swanky high-end food shop that John would know all about, I know less about, called Dean and DeLuca, which is in, I think it's in Tribeca. And you go in there, everything is Italian. 
Even the name, De Luca, everything, even if they're not Italians, they're piggybacking on the Italian image. And I tell you, if I could take you to the place, in a nowhere place, where there is a guy producing the cheese that very likely is being sold there, you wouldn't give a penny to this person. And then you would discover he's a PhD in economics that suddenly left everything at the age of 30 and is having his sheep and he's producing 25 variants of pecorino. Exactly. And he's selling them at I think. So, Varta, let's go back because, Fabrizio, you were in the Monti government. You were in the cabinet. I want to talk to you about your experience in government. But first, Marta, I want to talk about the issue, it seems, of the day, the, certainly the issue that is projected, the economic demographic issues, migration, which is obviously your area of speciality as well. I just read that since Maloney got into power, and we're going to talk to, about her in a second, the number of migrants coming from Africa has actually doubled when she said she was going to change the whole thing. Explain to me the migration from Africa and how that has unbalanced, if you will, the Italian political, social and economic backdrop. Well, first of all, let me tell you, I don't pay attention to these figures anymore. Also, you know, looking at some of the debate here in the UK about all these you know, incredible number of people. Ah, yeah, but the, the UK have gone mad with their obsession with little boats and everything. So that's that's just a side. So, but, no, but that, that migration, this got nothing to do with countries in a way. Migration feeds the you know feeds a frenzy, and I think this has become has become clear in a number in a number of political systems. I mean, you know, across Europe, we have witnessed that. I mean, migration from Africa. Migration from Africa is economic migration. There's a demographic issues. There is an attraction, you know, there is potential in Europe, there are supply chains, demand, and there are potential jobs to be filled. And the fundamental issue is that people don't have legal means to fulfill those aspirations. I did some analysis recently looking at the figures of the rejection rates for Schengen visas. These are visas for leisure and business, so people who apply to come and do business in Europe. There is a strong correlation with GDP, and effectively all African countries have an abnormally high rejection rate for something as normal as a visitor's visa. So there is a structural problem with people being denied opportunities to invest money, to travel, to visit, to be tourists, to shop at Harrods, and that is just a To eat Fabrizio's friend's pecorino, for example. Exactly, to buy the super expensive pecorino that, that, that you mentioned earlier. And that's linked to the reasons why desperate people get on boats, because there is no other choice. There is no other, you know, there is no alternatives. And, and that's the only thing that really matters. All, you know, Meloni is going to Tunisia, I, I gather, to try to strike a deal, to give countries money so that people that don't get on boats is madness, is a recipe for failure. However, I think she should start worrying a lot more about people leaving the country. Recent figures shows that there are about 65,000 more people who leave the country than people who arrive to come and live and work in Italy. These are often young talents, recent graduates, young professionals who seek opportunities outside of the country. This comes at an extraordinarily high cost for the Italian economy, about one percentage point of GDP, and is unsustainable given the rapidly aging population. So the prime minister should shift her attention to trying to reduce the brain drain and keep people in Italy rather than worrying so much about the relatively small number of people who arrive from Africa. And until we create you know, legal pathways visas, you know, that allow people to, to travel and, you know, express their talent, we're not going to fix it. And so, you know, to focus on, you know, the numbers this season from last seasons is just, is a waste of time. And frankly, 
we really risk feeding the political frenzy, which is the same in Italy and elsewhere. And my hope, and what's happened in, in Holland, and hopefully what will happen to Maloney if she continues on this path, is that they fail. These political attempts to just ride the migration narrative to create you know, big reforms and big investment tend to fail, to fall flat. And so you know, the migration gets people elected, but it rarely keeps people in power. And so having said that, we have nowhere near seeing sort of politicians in Italy or anywhere else who take the long-term view to create mechanisms for people to be able to move and contribute to economies and societies. What fascinates me about Italy, in the last 20 years, you've had this really weird lurch between populism and technocracy with nothing in the middle. Most of the countries go right, left, you know, whatever. But Italy has gone from Silvio Berlusconi and Forza Italia, and then you have these Fratelli Italia, the, the brothers of Italy, and then in between, you have technocrats. I explain that to me. What's going on at the highest level? Oh, that's a big question. Let, let, let me be short on it. I mean, basically, everything is happening today. Everything, everywhere, is a result of 40 years of disastrous neoliberalism. That substituting liberalism, which was about competition, no to monopolies, to monopolizing. I mean, that's, that's a new thing in 40 years. And since it coincided with an enormous increase in data availability and use and the digital transformation, these data are in the hands of a very few people. This is, the, this is the real big thing around the world, okay? So concentration of control. A country like Italy was hit particularly badly. We were talking about before about small and medium-sized enterprises. I mean, how can they elaborate? How can they provide knowledge if in 1994... At the world level, we decided that knowledge uh, is going to be blocked by the system of intellectual property rights. Okay, So Italy was particularly damaged in its capacity to be entrepreneurial by this amazing concentration of data. This produced anger, amazing inequalities everywhere. And the reaction to inequalities, it has always been, and parties were not filling the gap. So there were no political parties actually interpreting people's anger and need and aspirations uh, and denial of opportunities, and then they were swept by populism. Populism is not a bad world. I mean, let's remember about U.S. populism. It was an amazing movement. So people in the streets are saying, hey, parties, you're doing nothing. So populism was just filling the gap. But in Italy, this populism was interpreted by somebody like Berlusconi, as in the US by Trump, as uh, in other countries by Vox, as in other countries in, in Austria by the almost elected Nazi uh, guy. So it was interpreted by saying, hey, guys, parties are failing. You are in trouble. You're terribly anxious. We need Caesar. We yes, need, the, we need an authority. Caesar. We need somebody. They do know that these guys will not deliver happiness, but at least they will take a decision and will take them out of the anxiety of uncertainty. So in a sense, the anger of people, the resentment of people that can turn into good populism, that can actually move democratic parties into action and mobilizing, was turned into supporting authoritarian regimes. That's what happened in, in my country. And you talk about the technocrats in between. But let me be quite frank. I was a member of the Monti government, okay? So I was a public administrator. Uh, called into the job one day. I learned about it at 11 o'clock in the morning and I was minister at one o'clock in the morning. But it was an enormous difference between our government, the Draghi government. What was the difference? People that are listening to us remember Italy in the year of 2011. Italy was collapsing because yes. the markets were not trusting Italy to run its games. They were not buying the bonds, blah, 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 blah. 
So the Italian right-wing government designed, uh, in agreement with Europe, uh, uh, coming back, uh, a rescue operation, right? And we said, as Italy, we don't want the IMF, we don't want the EU to run it, we want to run it ourselves. And the rest of the world said, okay, we believe it, but we want that particular plan, those six uh, pages of plan, out of which there was an increase by five years of the pension retirement age, okay? We wanted to be run by a technocrat. So yes, it was a technocrat government, but it was a technocrat government implementing a design by politicians. The Draghi government was the ultimate level technocracy where a technocrat was entrusted with designing a mission, with designing a strategy. It didn't have any five pages, not even a page, not even two lines to interpret. So was that was the ultimate sign of a failure of parties that prepared Meloni to come into the game. And she came into the game and said, politics is back. And people, in a, in a sense, felt it because she's a politician at 24 years old. For those who are listening to us, she was there fighting in the streets on what I consider the wrong side. But she's certainly done all the climbing. She's one of the young guys that made herself through it with the wrong ideas, with ideas about little Italy, of a closed Italy, rejecting people, building barriers, and providing subsidies, subsidies, subsidies. So that's how she came about. I don't know whether I delivered it in so few words. No, no, that's a fascinating. It's a fascinating because Irish listeners will remember we went through exactly the same. You remember we were part of the pigs together, which is what the British described as, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Italy, Greece, and Spain. These as a, as a German said to me, with the exception of Spain, he says, you know, it's really amazing, man. I said, what's the story? He says, look at this crisis in Europe. He says, it's all you Catholics. And I actually thought he was what he was basically saying. He was saying, like, I said, yeah, well, that's the power of confession. You know, if I didn't mean to do it, Father, you know, we pay it back later, etc. We, we remember this extremely well because the IMF came into Ireland and they imposed austerity. And the parties, as you said, simply in a way, executed a plan that was imposed upon them, which we would have had to do probably anyway, given that we couldn't raise any money. So in a way, we feel very proximate to this Italian experience over the last while. And you can argue again, in the case of Ireland, that the same upward momentum from the street, the rejection of politics we see now in the expansion of the Sinn Féin vote in Ireland, which was literally 5 or 6% before the crisis, and it's now 33%. So it's by far the dominant. So it's the same dynamic. You got right-wing populism. We look as we're probably going to get something like left-wing populism, but it's the same general idea. So Fabrizio, I think you've explained it extremely well, but looking forward, I am here. I am, as you can hear from my voice, endlessly fascinated by this country. And I love the cinema and I love the literature. I love the look of the people. And what I see is a country that is regularly dismissed by the global powers and constantly surprises on the upside. It's like your Italian football team, you know? They go into the games and you think, this, these guys know how to win. They know how to get out of these things. They know how to, to win things. Explain to me, if you look forward, what you think is going to be the spark of the country over the next 10 years, maybe 15 years. The hope is in the entrepreneurial civic and public ferment the country still has, but which is not being able to express leaders, okay? So we are in democracies. We might like deliberative democracy as much as we want, and I do, and I spend my life now in it, but, but electoral democracy is also important. 
we can't have just a deliberate democracy because laws are decided on, 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 at that level and negotiation in Brussels are run by governments and negotiation in Washington, in the WTO, so important. Remember, denial to South Africa and, uh, and, to, and to India to access to vaccines. Where was that decided? Not certainly at local level. So what we fail to do is this amazing, still alive society expressing a leader. So where is my hope? That more and more young people are actually taking the ridiculous, crazy risk of running into politics. People like me are over. We should be over. We should be giving suggestions and ideas and content. But there are some young guys, 25, 26, and there are networks, Ticandido, Facciamo Eleggere. These are networks of young people, uh, progressive, uh, but not belonging to parties, many of them. They actually take a, a, a risk in a little comune, in a little city councils, and they go through the steps. But they don't do it by being called in in a big party. They don't, not by becoming insiders, but by risking. Taking risks not entrepreneurially, but taking risks politically. So I do see the chance of something, you say 10, 15 years, not five years, yeah. huh? not five years. I, don't, I see very gloomy five years. 10, 15 years, I see that becoming a possibility of a renewal of that ferment going into politics. Wow. Okay, Marta, on this optimistic note, because what we're talking about, sort of an organic growth of almost a parallel enthusiasm, let's say, an enthusiasm, and energy, because societies run on this bizarre concept called human energy. Economists say, oh, it's about building bridges and building technological universities and having budget deficits. It's not. It's about this crazy notion that this internal energy that drives all of us to get actually to get out of bed in the morning. And if you galvanize that and you capture that, the sky's the limit. The sky's actually the limit. So Marta, on the out, what is your sense of the future? So let me, because I work a lot on international issues and I look at countries from this sort of international system standpoint, I think when it comes to hope, there is something that it is possible to leverage this enthusiasm, this entrepreneurialism, this energy that you just discussed. And one thing that I've always, I'm always struck by when it comes to Italy and the way people look at Italy and understand is that people fail to see that sort of all this energy, all this beauty, all this potential, you know, is, is, is something that, yes, happens against the odds of the dysfunction of the national system or Sistema Paese, but is also underpinned by a governance structure that gives actual power and uh, opportunities to territory, which is an, a word that doesn't really exist in English properly. So that, where the, so the, you know, the beauty of the local level is not just a romantic idea, it's also made of norms and structures that actually give some power and some autonomy and some, you know, incentives for risk taking in ways that I think Italy, partly, you know, to overcome the limits of the systems that we just described and the stalemate has really delivered more so than many others. And it really had something to show and to tell. Italian cities, I work a lot with cities now, and Italian cities and some of the, you know, the risks and the achievements of mayors and local administrators are something that could really be cherished and really learned from at the international level, where, to, in all honesty, you know, countries that work well, we mentioned Germany a few times, look at the UK, you know, are now a little bit revealing their limits. You know, the international system can no longer rely on, you know, old countries to run the world. And so actually all the experience of the Italian territorio becomes really relevant. And I, you know, I have this idea and this dream that I, you know, trying to also do my bit towards that hope to really try to connect this, to really show the potential of this energy beyond that pecorino showing up 
in the shop in New York or my friends around, you know, entrepreneurial ideas to bring the Italian quality to the world, but to really make that experience of local governance and the potential of territorio known and understood and really, uh, you know, an engine for rethinking actually global development and how we address global challenges from climate to pandemics to things like migration. Uh, Thank you both, because it's been fantastic to just try and get an insight. I know it's a very, very quick snapshot, but a snapshot into this society. And it's just very interesting. I was was reading something by Nassim Taleb many years ago, and he was talking about fragility and lack of fragility. And he was making exactly the point that you both make, which is that because Italy is compromise and negotiation and compromise and a government falls and a government, what he says is that is essentially the firmament of stability, not instability. That governments that are in power on their own for seven years, first past the post, no compromise. They're the societies that end up fragile. Whereas societies like Italy that are constantly negotiating and compromising and coordinating and having coalitions are actually societies that are deeply, deeply stable, which is, I think, quite an interesting way to leave. So, Marta and Fabrizio, thank you both very much. And we'll talk to you again. Thank you so much, David. Hi, David. Nice to speak again. Ciao, Fabrizio. Bello vederti in video. Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food, and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call one 800 Club Med or your travel advisor. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're a Shark Tank fan or business junkie, check out the podcast Another Bites. Each week, Another Bite breaks down the biggest success stories and most disastrous failures to come out of Shark Tank. The hosts break down each company's pitch, analyze the deals that were or weren't made, and answer the million-dollar question, are they still a company? Whether you're an entrepreneur looking for tips or a Shark Tank fan that just wants to relive the drama, Another Bite's your deep dive into the world of Shark Tank. Just search for Another Bite in your favorite podcast app, like the one you're listening to right now. Joe Mac, I have a great love of Italy and Italian food and wine in particular, but it was interesting what he was saying. There's a few things that he was saying that I thought was fascinating. One was what he ended up talking about the kind of new politics from the youth and trying to get the young people back into politics and build it from the ground up, as it were. But of course, the other point that he made is something that they're up against all the time is this whole idea of, and we talk about the insiders and outsiders, But what really kind of fuels that is this inheritance where there's no inheritance tax, this concentration of wealth in a smaller and smaller group of people. And as he says himself, you can inherit money, but you can't inherit skills and talent. Well, it's interesting. So that was brought in by Berlusconi. 
and Berlusconi was obviously a very rich man. Yeah. And uh, he obviously wanted to find... Look, it's what is one interest... Remember I told you I was reading Gramsci last night, the Italian Marxist, yes. right? Now, really, and if you're into Marxism or Marxist thought, Marxist philosophy, incredibly, Gramsci was starved to death by Mussolini. Imagine that. Right. Imagine that. In his 30s, he was an Italian communist from Sardinia, okay? But amazing thinker, right? Now, fascinatingly on inheritance, right? It's the one area that the right wing and the what I've called the liberal right, libertarian right, yeah. and the Marxists agree on, right? The libertarian right believes that inheritance ultimately queers the pitch because it gives you know, Tim, nice but dim with rich dad, <laughs> loads of money, yeah, right? Yeah. And therefore it queers the pitch in a way, simply gives money to people who don't deserve it. And in so doing, it actually takes opportunity away from the more entrepreneurial, the more ambitious folk, right? That's on the libertarian right, okay? So they see it as inefficient from an economic perspective. The Marxist left see it as unfair from a Marxist perspective because it just propagates power through wealth down families. So ironically, John, it's amazing. It's one of the very few areas that the libertarian right and the Marxist left agree on, which is that inheritance is an abomination. And the reason it's an abomination is because what it does is it makes sure that societies not only become unequal, but have inequality baked into them. Yeah. So that's the idea of the kid born on the wrong side of the tracks versus the kid born in the big, the big house, right? And amazingly, what Berlusconi managed to do was encourage this drone class, this inheritance class, by, of course, taking away inheritance tax. Because inheritance tax is at least one way of trying to claw back some of those inequalities that are endemic in the system. So it is fascinating. And I hadn't really been aware that they'd cut it to zero. I'd been aware of it, but it was when, when Fabrizio put it into the context and then Marta was saying that this encourages, again, a drone class running the show. And then they can be older and they can be from different geographical areas. So if it's the north of Italy, etc. No, you're absolutely right. Maybe we'll do an entire program, John, on inheritance tax. For sure. Because there's two things going on. One is people say, well, why should I work hard? Most people work hard to give to their kids, yeah. right? That's a natural familial urge, right? But the other one is that that bakes in inequality. So, yeah, I mean, I think we should maybe, maybe we could definitely go back and discuss this. But on the issue of Italy, John, yeah. I think that we should leave La Dolce Vita here. I've read myself a Vespa and I may well <laughs> zoom around Milan. Milan, an amazing city, not just architecturally, but isn't it quite amazing that the Italians, when we talked about the Black Death at the top, right, the industry that gave Florence the lead over everyone else was clothing, fashion, dyeing. They were great dyers that... Five, 600 years ago, the aristocrats of Europe wanted to be kitted out by Italians, yeah. Italian designers yeah. and Italian clothes makers. And it's still the case. Yeah. Here in Italy, you've Versace, you know, you've got, you think about all the big brands, Dolce Gabbana, Versace, all these things. 700 or 500 years later, they're still here. They're still dominant. They still run the world. And the world's stars still want to be kitted out by Italians. It's Go get yourself a, a suit made, Mac. Oh, could you imagine? I'd say the only man who would ever besmirch Italian design 
would be Dave McWilliams. <laughs> Ain't that the truth, Mac? Okay, John, so I will chat to you next week when I'm back. Arrivederci. Arrivederci, arrivederci. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.